Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today we're discussing Sansa V and Eddard 15 of A Game of Thrones. How's it going, Michael? You know, Dan, I feel great. I feel yeah, you, uh, so good at having read these chapters, Dan. You sent me a, an idea for the, the episode title last night. Yeah. Would you like to share that with the listeners? Oh, gosh. I don't know if I can remember its specificity, but I think it's something when something like Michael is so smart, I was so right about everything. <laughs> I think it was simpler. I think it was just, I was fucking right. I was fucking right, Dan. <laughs> I've been right about everything. I'm killing it. I'm like a soothsayer when it comes to books. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I have in my notes, like I take notes in the book while I'm reading. Yeah. And I just like started marking. I was like, I knew it with exclamation check marks next to everything as you go. And I realized that nothing that I check marked, I guess more of it was in the Eddard, the Eddard chapter than in the Sansa one. But like, like, I don't even know if <laughs> like, like I'm actually right, but I feel I, right. I have some ideas of what you're talking about. I guess we'll see. We'll see when we get hmm. there. I did. I had a question to start this podcast off with. Hit me. I realized as we were reading through, and again, a little from the Sansa side and more for the Eddard side, but we have seen throughout the book that there are certain characters and more so their positions that because of the position, it's not weird, but it's sort of expected that they would have transferred uh, from one reigning king to the next. Okay. We now have yeah. three families that have held the throne that we know about, like firmly, right? The Targaryens, Baratheon, and now Lannister yeah. sits on the throne. Yep, yep, yep. And so now we have, while we've only really experienced Baratheon, we've met some people that were part of Targaryen that then let like continued forward through Baratheon that now are continuing yeah. again. What my question was is, have we talked about, and, and maybe we have, or maybe it's been covered, but like, why the war against the Targaryens? Like, what was so bad about Targaryens? We talked about the Mad King. We've heard sort of like allusions towards a, 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 a raping of some kind or something that Rhaegar had done. We, yeah. Maybe Lysa was involved. Maybe, or, or was it Lysa, her, uh, uh, Eddard's sister? No, Lyanna. Lyanna, I'm Leanna. sorry. Uh, but but have has there been like an official like, they were harassing the poor or they they kept wasting money or yeah, something no, like that's that. Yeah, that's a good question. And I know, you know, the thing that comes to mind, like front and foremost for me is the Mad King. He was crazy. But I don't know if he really goes into so much of what that craziness, that madness was. Yeah. So we have... Some answers and some insinuations and some accusations is what we've heard so far that I'm going to okay. get into. Uh, we have heard from a couple of sources going back to very early on, but but including from Ned and from Cat, not eyewitnesses, but people you know that we think are authentic narrators. Uh, that Ned's older brother Brandon, who Cat was betrothed to, mm -hmm. was executed by strangulation by the Mad King. Okay. And his father, Lord Rickard, had to watch. We learned that very early on in the story. 
We don't really know the circumstances of that, but, but that happened. And then we know that Lord Rickard also died down south. Uh, so that's, that's confirmed. In addition to that, we have these accusations that Robert made about Rhaegar with Lyanna. So right. you had a couple of betrothals from this time period. You had Lysa and John Aaron. You had Robert and Lyanna. You had Catelyn and Brandon. And then Brandon died. And so Kat had to marry Ned. And Robert says that Rhaegar stole Lyanna and raped her. And that was what led to the war. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's the core of what we have confirmed here. You know, we've had some some references to things surrounding it as well. Obviously, we have a lot of subconscious or dream world thought from Ned about Lyanna's death. Um, he made a reference to Arya at one point. He told Arya that she has the wolf's blood like Lyanna mm. does. Mm -hmm. And he thought to himself or said to her, I can't remember which, that that's what led to the deaths of Lyanna and Brendan. Uh, so we don't have a ton of details surrounding that. Um, we also had Bran thinking just a couple of chapters ago about all the people who go south that never come back. And among those were listed Brandon and Rickard, his grandfather and uncle, who obviously right. he never knew. Um, and then, you know, finally, I would just point out, we talked about this way back at the beginning of the book when we first met everybody, uh, but two of Ned's children are named after this uncle and brother. You know, you've mm -hmm. got Bran and you've got Rickon for Rickard. Uh, alongside the John and Rob for John Aaron and Robert, presumably. Um, so there, there are lots of conversations surrounding this, um, but we don't know exactly what happened there. You know, Robert frames the rebellion in terms of rising up against the Mad King for what mm -hmm. Rhaegar did to Lyanna, but, but that's really the core of, of what we've seen so far. And I know also that Ned has, like, we've caught Ned thinking to himself sometimes, like, maybe this whole war wasn't worth it. Like, why did we even, like, like 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 you know was it worth like maybe the mad king had it right sort of thing and i know he says that kind of casually uh and not in a political sense but interesting to see that but i couldn't help but think about it as we got into these chapters as we see sansa as we we're in king's landing for both chapters this is post lannister takeover you know and and capturing yeah. ned and getting rid of starks and all of this uh and it's like man like you know, we started in a certain mindset of Baratheon, and now here we see it, like, upset, and it's like, well, maybe Baratheon didn't even need to be there. Right. Um, I will add one thing, just because you referenced it, uh, talking about, you know, Ned's regrets. Um, he thinks often, and those regrets often came up in the context of, if we're also killing children, what did we even do this for? Right. And we do know that the immediate trigger uh, that Kat thought about way back in her first chapter was the Mad King demanded Ned and Robert's heads for some reason. Mm -hmm. And that led to John Aaron, who was fostering the two of them rising up in rebellion, along with the Starks and the Baratheons in support of gotcha. these kids. Um, but we don't know the details that prompted that or how all of those different events that I just talked about may have been connected. Um, but, you know, I think, I think Ned's regret is wrapped up in a lot of what we've talked about with his trauma coming out of the war and the loss of various family members, um, but also with that question of, did we do the right thing? Did yeah, we actually yeah. make the world a better place, a, a safer place, a happier place by putting Robert on the throne? Because looking at the way he's ruled, I'm no longer necessarily convinced that that's true. And certainly they've now come out the other side where you had the Targaryens and the Mad King, and then you had this 
interim period with Robert as a kind of absentee king almost. Mm -hmm. And now it's Cersei in charge and, and with her various proclivities, uh, you have to wonder if maybe continuing the land, the, excuse me, the Tar Targaryen dynasty might have left the realm as a whole in a better place. It's interesting to think about sort of sins of the father, right? Because even the mad king, his sins get carried on to, well, what will the lineage lead to? Rhaegar, but even more so Daenerys, exactly. as we know her right now. And it's like comparing Daenerys to Lannisters, you're like, well, Daenerys is hyper honorable in what she's trying to go about right now. She's still a kid, but so is Joffrey and Joffrey sucks. So yeah. Yeah, no, if Danny had ended up on the throne, we've heard generally positive things about Rhaegar from people mm -hmm. other than Robert. Uh, there are options that would have left the dynasty intact while maybe removing the head. And certainly that's a historic, historical option uh, from our right. world where, where you know, you can rebel against a specific individual rather than against the regime as a whole. Yeah. With that said, though, I thought we'd jump into Sansa and... Let's do it. Okay, this chapter was boring. Uh, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm giving Sansa shit. Um, Sansa, through adversity and that she is now facing more and more in her chapters, is becoming more interesting to me. But with that said, this chapter basically stays in one location. Yeah, all in the uh, throne room. It's all in the throne room. And this is really, it's not officially this by any means, but it's kind of the coronation of Joffrey in the most political sense. He is running the king's throne room right now. He is making decisions and having them sort of put into effect. And when I say he, I mean the throne with Joffrey yeah. on it. So Cersei's there, Pycelle is there making announcements and, and all these sort of things. But this is now the rule of Joffrey. Yeah, this set piece really reminds me of the one from a few Sansa chapters ago where she was brought in to write those letters where it felt very rehearsed. This mm -hmm. was the small council sitting down together beforehand and going over, okay, first we're going to do this and you'll read this statement and then we're going to do this and you'll read this statement just step by step by step by step, make sure that they had the pageantry of politics really laid out and ready to go. And so we have, you know, and it's funny because the scene you know, is obviously an echo of Ned sitting on the throne in place of, yeah. you know. Sansa uh, makes that connection directly. Exactly. And we really do have this entry of characters and it's all through Sansa's eyes. So Sansa's standing there in the throne room and she's watching the throne room kind of get itself set for what's about to happen as, as you know, the king, I don't know what you'd call it, right? The king's officiatum, court, yes, officiatum. Yeah. Who says that? That's um, not a word, Michael. I made it up, but it sounded <laughs> officiatum to me. It did. Uh, we start with uh, Sir Mandon Moore, who I don't know who he is, but more he's, people um, keep coming in. Yeah, go ahead. He's a member of the King's Guard. He's one of those kind of smattering gotcha. of guys whose names we've heard. Jabbler's Sawzo, Sir Aaron Santagar, Redwine Twins, Horror and Slobber. Yes. Uh, Grandmaster That's not their Price. actual names. <laughs> is it not? No, they have. I thought it was a Three names. Stooges thing again. <laughs> like, uh, no. Just... no, this one, this is nicknames that she and Jane Poole came up with for them. That uh, they rhyme right. with their actual names, but I don't have them written down anywhere. Um, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Though. We have sort of, again, just this this sort of parade of characters coming in. The small council arrives one by one. Grandmaster Pycelle, Lord Varys, Lord Baelish. And then we have Sir Balin and Sir Donatus. We have Sir Barristan Salmi arrives. Sir Eris Oakhart, Boris Blunt. And that's just on the pages I have open right now. It's yeah. filling up. The room's filling up with familiar faces. And just to add, Sansa is feeling a cold wind coming towards her from people she once considered familiar. Nobody's really talking to her. They're avoiding her. 
he's a little she's tainted she's tainted she's stigmatized if you will yeah i also want to mention she she draws the comparison to the earlier scene with ned by noting that it's all lords now uh it was fewer lords than under robert but it's just lords there are no peasants here come to bring their thoughts before the king this is a, a high class nobility session with all these characters sort of arriving in court and, and sort of setting themselves up in position, uh, Joffrey comes, sits down, and announces, it is a king's duty to punish the disloyal and reward those who are true. Grand Maester Pycelle, I command you to read my decrees. And Step that's, one. That's what Step happens. one of the scene. Yeah, he does. I, um, you know what this reminded me of? Did you ever see the movie Bananas with Woody Allen? Woody Allen's movie? No, I actually never have. It's hysterical, but uh, the it's all about this sort of revolutionary uprising, I think in Cuba. Okay. And once the revolutionaries take power, it's like, I have decrees. Underwear must be changed once an hour, every hour. And to make sure that you do this, put the underwear on the outside of your pants. Okay. And just, <laughs> it's like, like just a lot of goofiness that comes out of it. Yeah, this is a little less goofy, but it's it's interesting, uh, you know, thinking in the context of of the kind of silent coup that Joffrey had. This is him uh, and Cersei and, and this regime really consolidating their power by yeah. singling out the people who are with them and the people who are as of now against them and really drawing those battle lines in what is is meant to be a show of force, but also a show of, of like I was just saying, the political pageantry, the trappings that go along with power. We have the throne now. We have royal decrees. We have the throne room. We have the capital city. These things have meaning in uh, in a political sense because people ascribe meaning to them. And so by asserting that, by putting that out there, they're really planting a flag in the sand and, uh, and, and trying to preempt some of the activity or else draw enough strength to them to help them defeat the response from these others. And I think too, that like, there's no room for, for assumption here. The first thing is, here are the people that we demand swear fealty to us. We are going to respect them as long as they come down and bend on one knee and say, we recognize you as king. There's no room for ambiguity. And then following that is a list of people who say, like, like that, a list of people who are anathema to the, yeah. to the, to the kingship, which is saying well, these people, you do not be friends with these people. Yeah. Uh, they, um, the two lists that you just mentioned are combined to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. These people are allowed to re-enter the king's peace because the Lannisters in an ideal world would have everybody go home. They wouldn't have any sort of fighting. So it's okay if you come and you swear fealty now, we'll let you leave. Now, whether that's honest or not, for some of these right. names, maybe more so than others, maybe there are some of them they wouldn't allow to leave. But I think it's worth mentioning who's on these lists and focusing yep. in on that a little bit, because we do have a mix of the people who you can probably assume they would immediately take captive so as to suppress rebellions or soon to be rebellions versus people who they genuinely mean we want you to state you're on our side because we're not certain of that but if you do everything's cool so there's the baratheon brothers stannis and renly we've obviously yep. heard a lot of conversations surrounding stannis and the threat that he poses Renly, we don't know where he falls. We know he left the city instead of stick around for Joffrey. But maybe once he gets his safety guaranteed, if he negotiates something, he can come back and, and get welcomed back into the fold that way. Similar to Renly, we know they kind of go together as Loris Tyrell and his family, the Tyrells, who we know are quite powerful. 
On the other hand, we have the Starks, the Riverland Lords, the Tullys. These are people who are already in open rebellion and already fighting the Lannisters. Uh, and so you have to assume that maybe this wouldn't be the safest thing in the world. And I think it's important to mention when it comes to Starks that Arya Stark is on that list and that catches Sansa. It catches her. She yeah. realizes that it must mean that she must have escaped. And she goes on to assume that Arya must be safe at Winterfell. She must have gotten on the boat and made it to Winterfell. Yeah. I wonder also with Sansa if maybe there's some aspect of that of thinking like, really, even even the children, even me, she's obviously not named in this because they have her in hand. They don't need mm -hmm. to demand her presence. She's already sworn fealty. Uh, but this isn't just the lords of the houses. This isn't just the military side of things. It's even Arya. And for a lot of the rest of the people mentioned, it's and their families and their wife and kids and, and, and. Uh, and so it really does extend beyond that fighting force to we we want the full story of it. We want everyone to come and show the realm that we are in charge by getting on their knees and saying it out loud. The sort of uh, cherry on top of all of this is the direct removal and, and criticism of Ned and the replacement of him as hand with Tywin. Mm -hmm. uh saying that that this is now decreed as such and yes. also i'm so sorry i think that and maybe this is one step further than where we're at in the chapter but also the appointment of cersei onto the king's council yes so she takes stannis's spot stannis had been uh i can't remember if he was the master of ships or the master of laws but either way he had been on the small council we obviously didn't see him in that role yeah. because he left as soon as john aaron died um, and so Cersei takes that spot, which also makes sense because this is the Lannister presence on the council. Tywin has been made Hand of the King. He is obviously out in the field with an army right now, so can't physically, literally play that role. And so she is, is taking charge and being their, their presence to the extent that Joffrey is not doing it himself, which everyone assumes is 100%. I thought there was also this great moment that happens right after the announcement of appointment of Cersei onto the King's Council which is the sort of raising of Jano Slint into a lordship. And if I'm not mistaken, he quickly then becomes the sort of the uh, head of the King's Guard. And I liked this. No, no is that not him? Uh, it, no, so he's he does not become head of the King's Guard. So he does get made a lord. Mm -hmm. uh, he was already head of the Gold Cloaks, which he still is. And they put him in that position on gotcha. the small council, but he stays in that role. The big reward that he gets in addition to a spot on the council is he gets Harrenhal, which we know is a, is a castle in the Riverlands, um, currently occupied by the Wents, who were mm -hmm. mentioned. Lady Went was mentioned in that list of names we just saw. Right. Um, but this is one of the more powerful castles, one of the, the greater authorities. And so we get a brief mention that there's some murmuring from the lords in the crowd of, I can't believe this guy who's effectively a peasant just got made more powerful than me. Uh, so maybe ruffling some feathers there. We also get the note, which I think is worth mentioning, that his sigil is a bloody spear, gold on black, uh, which is seems a pretty explicit callback to him executing the Stark men in the throne room. I thought also it was a fun foil of this, of this, the approach towards honor from the Lannisters versus, say, Starks, right? Where, where honor and sort of like living up to that level of honorability is such an important thing when it comes to Starks and especially Ned. Whereas here, it seems a little casual. We're going to, it seems very political more than casual. Yes, we want this person. Yes, we want this person. We're going to, we're, we're really setting the stage. So whereas Ned tried to play, and we'll actually see a little bit more of this in Ned's chapter in a second. 
But whereas Ned seemed to say there is an underlying current of honor that people should hold to that I'm sure they do. Lannisters are saying, no, 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 we're going to give, we're going to bestow honors on people that we like and that we want in specific strategic positions. And that's what will define honor, not the act. Uh, you know, I, I think I don't necessarily disagree with you. This is a place where the Lannisters are playing real politic. Uh, and that is certainly not something that we ever saw from Ned. I do want to try and, and start pushing back against this grand unified theory of the Starks that you have here a little bit, because I don't think it's as black and white as you're drawing it in terms of how they act and how they work. We have just spent a couple of chapters with Rob seeing him play that game, mm -hmm. seeing him try and mm -hmm. figure out mm -hmm. who do I give honors to? Who do I put in charge of this? And we got an explicit reference from Kat that he had learned from Ned how to do that as the firstborn son. So we certainly didn't see Ned play that game at all in King's Landing to his major detriment, but there is some indication that he played a version of it, a northern version of it, a, a pastoral version of it earlier in life, and that they were able to do it because that is how things work in the nobility. You can't just coast off of the good people are good and the bad people are bad. You're going to get overthrown. You know, this is such a weird comparison, maybe, but it reminds me a little bit of the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, where uh, like an African, an African chieftain has to, this is the one where the, the soda bottle falls out of a plane, right? Exactly. Yeah. And he has to go throw this soda bottle off the edge of the world. But as he does this, he kind of goes through modern, you know, modern, you know, communities and setups and, and, and technology. And uh, he has to face how different that is from his, what he understands as being sort of kingly, if you will. And yeah. I think that, sure, we have examples of Ned being kingly and honorable from northern standards but i don't think he knew how to play it by southern standards and I think that's, that's what exactly we're seeing here right. yeah a hundred percent also so, gotta wonder how that movie would hold up in 2023 do you know what i think we should do a watch party dan it's right, time God's, first of all and we should do a pc watch party okay. why are they saying gods there's <laughs> obviously only one it's jesus uh okay michael i think there are seven we're in westeros right now Let's uh, just, why don't we compromise? Three and a half. Fair enough. Uh, so we have this moment in the throne room. There's obviously lists and lists going on. And we have, so, so we kind of go through this evolution. We go from a list. We say, here are the people that are on our shit list, but they can come and pledge fealty. Here are the people that are on our shit list and do not interact with them. They suck. They're on the shit list. Mm -hmm. And then we get into, and here's somebody who's present right now. We're going to give them honors and we're starting to honor them. And then we move into this next like moment of the scene where uh it's the same so, dichotomy you were just laying out for the earlier things here's uh -huh. someone who's present who we're going to take things away from exactly and so sure enough sir barristan selmy is invited uh to come kneel before the king and, and and bring himself forward and he is if i'm not mistaken he is the head of the king's guard right now yes exactly so i think that's where your confusion was because uh, spoiler, he loses that position right now, and then they replace a re they, they appoint a replacement, but it is not Janice Slip. But we'll no. get to that. Uh, there, it's kind of a wonderful, it's a short moment with Sir Barristan Selmy. I think it's a page and a half or two pages. Um, but it's a wonderfully tragic. Uh, yeah. He's basically told, thank you for your service. You're no longer needed. Please leave. To which he responds, this is my life. I I swore an oath. I gave up. I gave up getting married. I gave up lands. I gave up 
you know, any sort of financial compensation. I was here to hold this position till I'm dead. And you're taking this away from me. And they say, don't worry, we'll give you land. And he says, just a place to die. Like, like this is awful. And there's no flexibility coming from Lannisters here. They really are just restacking the deck to what they want it to be. Yeah, they're restacking the deck, but they do point out that, you know, he says, I'm supposed to serve until I'm dead. And the response is, who's death? Yours or your king's? And later on, as he insists, you know, I've been doing this my entire life. I served three kings, uh, Aerys, uh, the Mad King, his father before him, and Robert. And all three of them are dead now. And so as a member of a bodyguard uh, whose responsibility is to keep the kings alive, the Lannisters, whether this is the specific reason or a cover, and I think it's a little bit of both, are pointing out that that maybe he's not qualified to keep Joffrey safe, and that is their primary goal here. I'd actually push back even harder because it seems like the person they're replacing him with is Jamie Lannister. So yes, Jamie Lannister, the Kingslayer, the man who took his oath of protecting the king forever, and basically flipped 180 degrees on it saying, not only will I not be protecting you, I will be the one to kill you. Yeah, but uh, Jamie's is... not going to kill Joffrey. <laughs> In terms oh of ability God. to keep Joffrey safe. Dan, if Jamie's the one to kill Joffrey, I will lose my shit. I hope he is. <laughs> I hope that Joffrey dies a horrible, painful death at the hands of the Kingslayer. He just like, that's his role. He's already got the name. It's like Chekhov's gun. It's like if you put a Kingslayer in Act 1. He's going to slay a king in Act 3. That is a very interesting thought. We'll have to remember that as we keep moving here. Uh, you're getting ahead of yourself, though, because I think Joffrey's just going to live a long and happy life. I'm sure. But the fact is, is that Sir Barristan brings up exactly what I'm saying, which is, are you fucking kidding me? You're going to yeah. put the Kingslayer into this position, which I will say, to your point, I do not see him killing his son. Yeah, literally his kid. Um, I one thing I really like about this this set piece um, with Sir Barristan fighting back against this is how badly it disrupts the pre-planned theater of all of this. Uh, I don't know if they had expected him to go quietly and just concede, or maybe if they figured this was how it was going to go and that was okay. It was a display of power. It was getting their people into the positions they wanted them in. It was getting rid of this liability, whatever it may be. But the contrast with Lord Slint from a moment ago being ready to walk up to the front as his rewards are announced with his kids there to hold his new shield showing the sigil and all of that, he was told beforehand what was going to happen. And it's very, very obvious that Sir Barristan was not. Uh, and that really shows the mechanical, the, the mechanical workings of this sequence in the throne room up until this point. I'll add too that Sir Barrison really does make a statement for himself. He removes his garb, if you will, in front, saying, I don't yeah, need any of this shit. I'm out of here. And there's sort of a little bit of mockery that happens towards him. Look at this naked knight. He, you know, what an embarrassment, this old man. And he kind of storms out. Uh, and and we have this beautiful uh Innocent moment, innocent may not be the right word, but this beautiful moment of Joffrey who kind of shows his colors a little bit where he says, he basically says, he called me boy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he talked about my uncle Stannis too, to which Varys uh, comes up and says, oh, idle talk, which I think is what we, the readers are feeling too, right? This is a man who feels totally betrayed. He's trying to have leave with a little bit of dignity, but uh, 
Joffrey stands strong and he says, he could be making plots with my uncles. I want him seized and questioned, to which no one moves. This is yeah. a child being childish. But Joffrey raises his voice and says, I want him seized. Uh, and sure enough, the man that we were just talking about, who is it, Jano Slint? Jano Slint, yeah. The head of the gold cloak says, don't worry, we'll get him. And they're, that's what they're going to do, I assume. Is they're going to go capture this poor... Well, I was about to ask, is he, is he going to get taken captive? Uh, or where where else is he going? I mean, he didn't seem to know what was next for him. He never contemplated a next. You know what this reminded me of was the movie The Dictator by Sasha okay. Baron Cohen. Yeah. You know, where he You're goes all to that, over the place with references. I, oh my God. But he goes to that bar and it turns out everybody he ordered executed has been like sent to be an immigrant, like an immigrant, an immigre into the United States. Uh-huh. And he's like, I could have sworn I ordered you executed. And I wonder if that's like kind of what's going to happen to Joffrey. Is he's like, off with his head. And it turns out that they all just kind of get sent a little They're further. Taking them to the island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> that'd be fun. Um, yeah, so we'll we'll have to keep an eye out for that. There's one last moment in this progression that I thought was worth pointing out, um, certainly with respect to the order to go seize him, was after stripping off his uniform and, and his armor, he next uh, takes his sword out, to which everybody reacts like he's going to go try and kill Joffrey. And he says, you know, no, I'm not going to do that, uh, just, just throwing it at the feet of the throne. But remember, I could take all five of the other Kingsguard members that are here right now if I wanted to. It doesn't matter that I'm old or that you think I'm past it. None of you are worthy. I could destroy all of you. So it makes you wonder how the gold cloaks are going to fare. Uh, certainly, they have massive amounts of numbers they can throw at him. That that would probably get the job done. But we'll yeah. see. And that's, and that's kind of my thought about it, too. I really do think that Joffrey's kind of stacking his deck the way that I honestly, presumably, every king would and should yeah, the uh, allies around you. It, exactly. it, it contrasts with Ned in terms of playing the game the honorable way or the right way, where he was using his people for other jobs rather than putting them into positions of power and strength around him. He was giving men over to the gold cloaks. He was sending men out to deal with Gregor Clegane, uh, possibly because those are who he trusted to get those jobs done. So not that it wasn't a power play in its own move, but just the wrong one because it left him exposed. Whereas the Lannisters are consolidating a, a wall around them. And, and to that end, Jamie takes over as the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, but they make Sander Clegane the new replacement knight to bring it I back to seven. I love that. I think that's so Excuse amazing. Me, not, not a knight. Not a knight, Dan. <laughs> Not a knight. Uh, and that's exactly what happens next, right? Is Littlefinger actually chirps up saying, hey, the King's Guard needs to be seven. We're down to six. And they appoint uh, Sandor Clegane to do that. And he says, okay, he thinks about it and he says, I'll take it, but I will not be a knight. And there's a little bit of pushback. And they say, well, that's, it's always been knights. And he says, a member not the, anymore. Specifically, a member of the King's Guard says it's always been knights, Sir Boris Blunt. So you have to wonder you know, if he's saying this because similar to the Lord's murmuring about Lord Slint getting jumped up, oh, you're you're going to put me alongside this not knight? You're going to ha- put him in my ranks and soil the, the white cape for that? Um, but Sander wins that, that battle of wills. He does, although I will add that uh, there, there is sort of a current of sort of ebbing modernity throughout all of this. Right. A lot of these positions and a lot of these things are really rooted in honor and tenure and time served. Exactly. And we really have a a flipping of this apple cart. It's not, 
you know, it's not here's somebody else who's so perfect for this job. It's this is who I want there. And I'm going to put them there. And the fact is, is that in the first generation and iteration of something new like that, something more modern, mm-hmm. that's really fun. But it sets a really terrible precedent moving right. forward. Hey, everybody, the other six, your tenure no longer matters. Your your positions as knights no longer matters. Like the fact is, is that you could easily be replaced by anybody who's just big and has a sword. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious to see and uh, to see if we will learn how new this is compared to the way the Targaryens ran things, mm-hmm. because we certainly have examples, Viserys in this book itself, but the Mad King, uh, Magor the Cruel, who gets mentioned again next chapter, of kings who seem to have been power hungry or vicious uh, or other things of that nature that maybe would have acted similarly in terms of consolidating a power base. Um, so, you know, we don't know. Has any member of the Kingsguard been dismissed before? Has anybody been forcibly retired like this? Or is this the Lannisters doing something brand new to serve their own ends? You know, is is it new in kind? Yeah. Is it new in its specific version? And, and we just don't have the answers to any of those questions yet. From here, though, we move into Sansa's sort of marquee moment in the yeah. throne room. Uh, she decides before the, the court is adjourned. She, she, you know, and obviously this is a Sansa chapter. We're talking a lot about Joffrey. We're talking about Kingsguard. We're talking about Sandra Clegane. But the fact is, this is all from Sansa's perspective. She's audience to this, and she decides, and she's gone into this. We realize with something, one very particular motion in mind, which is what she does here, and she moves forward uh, to say, "My king, I need you to consider pardoning my father." Mm-hmm. this is and and throughout this and i'm saying it very quickly to this point but she goes through a lot of sort of internal language about joffrey is fair joffrey is just he loves me he this is everything is moving the right way he must be able to see this 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 he must be able to consider this charity towards my father yeah mercy specifically not necessarily a pardon we she doesn't ask for anything specific but just mercy as a general catch-all um but it's worth noting that she's nervous she's nervous in a way not butterflies about joffrey but that we haven't necessarily seen from her before and back at the start of the chapter we skimmed past this we heard that cersei had kind of kept her under watch this entire time Mm -hmm. she had had somebody following her she had freedom of the castle but didn't go anywhere without a guard and she wasn't allowed out of the castle and so some of this facade is starting to break but she's still putting her faith uh in joffrey here and and really speaks that up i i find interesting that throughout this it strikes me as ineffective that she doesn't know how to go about this although i mean who knows what the result is uh and and we'll get to joffrey's actual reaction here in a moment but she comes up with all of these excuses for ned which seems to me the wrong way to go about it um you know you you should say yes he was wrong he did bad uh and, and just kind of fall on your sword and ask for literal mercy mercy in the sense of yes he's guilty but be merciful anyway and she does not do that. She kind of scrambles. Somebody must have tricked him, Renly or Stannis, or, you know, he was he was high from Milk of the Poppy and he didn't know what was happening. And she's really trying to find some way to say he, he wasn't actually guilty, while at the same time saying, I know he was guilty and what he did was wrong because she knows that that's the part they want to hear. I think that she's, it, it becomes a, she, Sansa herself becomes a interesting definition of cognitive dissonance here a little bit. She, she it's almost pathological. She wants to believe in herself 
She has a love for Joffrey. She has a love for Cersei. She loves the stories of what it means. To, she, she really sees herself and, 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 and sees her future as becoming queen. And I think that she, she cannot deny that to herself. And because of that, it takes all the realities outside of that and has to, it forces her to adjust it. Yeah. You know, she has to say, there has to be a way to excuse what my father did. It, rather than what is the more direct path, which is my father has always been honorable and has always found a just way forward. Instead, it becomes replaced with he must be, have been deceived. He must have been on drugs. He must have been, you know, lied to or whatever it is. And honestly, I find Cersei's reaction to be the breath of fresh air here. Because Cersei's like, I'm disappointed in you, Sansa. I really thought you would have picked up on what is happening by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and she hasn't. Sansa continues to be kind of like lost in her daydreams. Yeah, she's trying to have it both ways. I think you nailed that. You know, she can either say, my father would never do this. He's innocent and face the consequences of that. One of which is he will not get the mercy she's pleading for. Or say, yes, he was wrong. He's evil and a traitor, but be merciful anyway. Kind of that quintessential request for mercy. And instead she's trying to say, I want you guys to keep liking me and be nice to me. I want to do what it is I know you want. But at the same time, I can't bring myself to admit that he did anything wrong, that he wasn't some in some way influenced by the external world. So we find ourselves at the end of this chapter. Sansa makes her plea. And Joffrey is the gentleman prince that he always starts off as with Sansa. Yeah. And he basically says, you know what, I think, and, and I think Cersei's involved here too, but he basically says, you know what, if he'll admit to his crimes, we will find mercy. He has to take his crimes on the chin, but we, we will we will find a way for mercy for him if he yeah. does that. Yeah, Cersei suggests it first, which I think is important to note, because otherwise this would be somewhat too much, too savvy of a move for Joffrey, uh, who I can see either wanting to react to Sansa and and play the part or react violently or angrily. And this kind of middle path doesn't seem in his wheelhouse. Uh, But Cersei's reaction and, and Joffrey picking it up are perfectly in line with the rest of the chapter. What they need is a statement from Ned that Joffrey is the king. They need Rob to go home. They need the river lords to put down their swords and they need to secure that power. And this is the easiest path towards that in much the same way that all of that long list of lords, including Rob and Arya and whoever else coming and bending the knee is the easiest path to power. You can always deal with the possible dissidents in the ranks later. Once you've secured your hold on the throne, once you've secured your hold on the military, on on your own military apparatus, on whatever else it may be, building alliances, it all buys them time. And so if Ned comes up and says, I was wrong, I was trying to make a play for power and I lost, Joffrey is in charge, any rumors you've heard about his parents are lies and horrible and Stannis is the one who I was working with trying to mess with things, that makes everything that much easier for Joffrey to move moving forward. That brings us really to the end of the chapter. Yeah, I I just want to note briefly, we get reactions from the other counselors in the room to Sansa's request. And crucially for this next chapter, Varys says, such sweet innocence, and yet wisdom comes from the mouth of babes. And he's really kind of alone until Cersei speaks up saying, okay, maybe we can use this somehow, alone among the various advisors to take that position of maybe mercy is the right path. So a bit of a telegraphing of what we get in this upcoming chapter. And I'll add also that in the chapter we're about to read, 
Well, we'll get there when we get there. Okay. <laughs> let me let me pause on that there. Yeah, uh, I think we can just keep moving because these two really go perfectly together. So I'll, I'll hold my questions for you until the end. But why don't we Amazing. jump into Ned 15? Ned 15. And for God's sakes, Ned seems to be very present throughout this book, Dan. 15. 15 chapters. Chapters, yeah. 15 chapters. That's the name of this podcast episode. Classic chapters. Um, so we spend this this episode, this chapter with uh with Ned and you know, just as sort of like a like a high level sort of perspective here, he's in jail. He's losing his shit. He and he is losing it. Um, he goes through, and I'm I'm starting high level before we get into the specifics here and walk through it. But uh, he goes through his own. He he's basically in isolation. He is in jail in solitary confinement. There's no light. There's no understanding of time. There's barely food. There's barely water, and he's going nutty. You know, he's basically going through memories and thoughts and dreams and trying to understand, you know, he's self-critical and he's externally critical. But this is where we find ourselves for the majority of this chapter. Uh, he's stuck in a jail. It sucks. And he he it's starts really consistently throughout this before we get into the details and just picking up on what you were just saying. He's so critical and digging through the trauma of his various choices. And so I actually think it's really perfect, and I'm sure this played a part, that you started off this episode with a conversation about the war and Ned's perspective on the war and whether that was mm-hmm. the right decision, because he really gets into all of it here. His choices that we've seen in this book, his choices in the war, his choices throughout his life and how he's approached things, and really having that, you know, that that come to Jesus moment uh, that alone speaking to your ghosts kind of Shakespearean situation. You know, you think of it's uh, it's Hamlet, right? Where he has yeah. <laughs> the, the discussion with the ghosts where he's kind of losing his mind a little bit. I'm going to hate myself if it's Macbeth. I'm mixing things up here. Um, they both talk to ghosts. Oh, okay, great. That's why I was confused. <laughs> it's been a little while since I've read either. But, you know, he's, it's it's such a perfect stage trapping you can see this being done kind of similar to some of the other episodes where i've mentioned this of him alone on an empty stage going through this process as the robert actor comes back out on stage to have a conversation with him as people from his childhood show up to have these conversations with him whatever it may be to really engage with this this inner monologue and this inner struggle that he's handling here or not handling yeah he's losing it dan he's losing his, losing his shit I think it's worth going through some of the specifics early in this chapter. The chapter kind of splits into two. It's Ned with himself, then Ned with a visitor. Yes. Uh, but I think it's it's really interesting to see where he goes when he's with himself. I can't stress enough that he is starved, that he is, he is you know, baked dry. He, he, he thinks months are going by without before food and water come to him. He mm-hmm. is suffering. I... Uh, he he starts by remembering a sort of a, a, a conversation he had with Robert that we were witness to. That was a, a it was a memory that he had of this conversation where him yeah. and Robert were in the crypts in Winterfell. Oh, and it, I'm sorry, it wasn't even a memory we experienced. I think in real time. Yeah, no, we saw it. But uh, basically, Robert said the king eats and the hand takes the shit, and uh, he realizes that Robert was wrong. The king dies and the hand is buried because he is stuck. Stuck in this fucking cell, Dan. Yeah, and uh, and if it wasn't clear enough, the fact that they had that initial conversation in crypts, where yes. now he's in a dungeon that has become his tomb, he's thinking to himself. It's such a, a bookend for the 
the book. It's, it's you know, we have the start of the book happening underground with that conversation and now uh, coming towards the close of this first book of the series with another conversation between the two of them about their relationship and their past happening in a dungeon underground as well. I will say that, uh, well, Ned gets a little self-indulgent, but I'll also add that George R. R. Martin does not seem to have too much of a hand for subtlety on a lot of what happens in this <laughs> chapter and even okay. before it. Um, but but Ned starts to kind of curse himself. He thinks about so he's thought about Robert and things that Robert has said, and sort of the the, the hilarity of those those comments now in the moment. He thinks about Cersei and Cersei's comment that about like you know when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. I uh, and sure enough, Ned lost. <laughs> and this is this is where he sees himself going. Yeah. Um, he we are it is stressed to us from from the words in the book here that i mean there's just no sense of time he's in almost like an oubliette you know yeah. there, there's no sense of what's going on he has no sensory, idea. total sensory deprivation exactly. the only thing he has is the horrible smell of the prison which fades over time and the pain in his leg it's all he gets to to mark any sort of passage of time i uh, he really spends a lot of time I mean, it, it continues. He he continues to have kind of conversations with Robert. He continues to have conversations with Cersei to a certain extent. Eventually, we finally have a jailer that opens the door and gives him water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that kind of moves us into part two. So it starts with his delirium. It then gets into his needs. He's he's dying. I mean, he, he is he's being tortured at least. Yeah. Not a lot of water, not a lot of food. Uh, he he loses any sense of the difference between being awake and being asleep, uh, and it's it's pretty pretty terrible, Dan. It's pretty yeah. terrible. Yeah, you know he has these kind of apparitions come to him of Cersei, of Robert talking about their failures. Uh, Robert has this line, you here and me killed by a pig. How did we come to this? Which really summarizes all of it. Uh, but then he finally gets the water and slips into a dream or a memory. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, we can't tell which because he can't tell if he's awake or asleep, which I think is the perfect counterpart to his dream where we don't know how real it was, the, the dream sequence from the Tower of Joy, where we don't know how much of that was a memory versus how much of that was coming from his subconscious. And this seems to be more of the same. Exactly. And this, this dream slash memory really takes place long before the uprising against Targaryens. I, we, we have this, he moves really strongly into this third sort of memory of, I think it's a tournament? Uh, yes. Of some kind, a, a competition. The year of the false spring, there was a tourney at Harrenhal. Uh, so, you know, we just heard about this castle again in the Riverlands. He came from the Erie with Robert, with John Aaron, uh, and they, they came out for the tournament there. And we have these beautiful descriptions of it. And we, we sort of are reintroduced to characters that we know in present time as they were in past time. We see... Sir Oswald went. We see Sir Gerald Hightower. We see Jamie Lannister, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. They're all kind of partying a little bit. They're all together. I mean, it's it's weird to remember Kingslayer Jamie Lannister was King's Guard to Aerys Targaryen. Yeah, and specifically the, those first two names you mentioned were part of the group that Ned met at the Tower of Joy. So that's mm -hmm. the, the time we've seen them before. But this is Jamie becoming a Kingsguard. This is him. Exactly. This is his his crowning moment, his achievement, his his 
wonderful ascension. And they all got to watch that. It was a celebration. And you can really see how this is bringing the color back into Ned's life that we really haven't seen from him all book. This is him. He's 18. It's before Robert's Rebellion. It's before any of that violence and that trauma kicked in. You know, we've heard some about who he was when he was younger. He was the quieter between him and Brandon and things like that. But this is so much more vibrant than anything we've gotten from him this entire time. And it's his memory of a happier time, of a simpler time before all of those things happened to him. And we have, as this continues, we have a very specific piece of this memory come to life which is Rhaegar Targaryen becomes he becomes the champion, the champion. of this this of this tournament yeah uh, he, he specifically thinks nobody could beat him uh he defeated Brandon Ned's brother Bronze and Royce and Sir Arthur Dane who we've heard about many times and then uh, perfectly following on last chapter beats Sir Barristan in the final. So, you know, you think about a younger Sir Barristan in his prime back before he uh, he was old enough to be forced out of that position. And it's kind of fun to start to understand the longevity of these characters and how harsh the last chapter that we just saw through Sansa's eyes really could be to some of the Sir Barristan, for example. Mm-hmm. But here we are in this memory, and it's a memory of Rhaegar winning the tournament and and beating all those that are around him and he takes his crown of if i'm not mistaken blue flowers winter roses yeah winter roses blue as frost and everyone noticed at everyone everyone dan noticed as he rode past his own wife to hand these to ned stark's sister liana yeah and Ned, the which my note in the book says i knew it I freaking get ahead of you here. Jon okay. Snow is the child of Rhaegar and Lyanna, no doubt. And that makes him heir to the throne as a true heir, not the rebellious Baratheon heir. I'm not following here. So, I mean, we just see Rhaegar is married. Rhaegar is married to a wife, Ilya Martell. And, you know, it's the moment when all the smiles dies died he rides past his wife and and lays it in liana's lap are you saying they somehow bore a legitimate child and that child is john like walk me through the sequence of events here how does john even end up with ned then well because of liana liana says i'm pregnant don't tell rhaegar this is all my assumptions right okay yeah no i, I want think, you to tell me your assumptions. i think there's Lay a relationship a relationship between rhaegar and liana they couldn't get past it rhaegar and liana end up conceiving a child. It's Jon Snow. Lyanna says, don't tell anybody, Ned. We we have to keep this a secret. You take Why? this child. Because she's a betrothed to Brandon Stark. Brandon. Okay. Brandon. And Brandon, she says, yeah. this is between us. This is going to wreck sort of the life that's here. It turns out, this is my assumption, Robert Baratheon finds out that Lyanna had a baby from Rhaegar. He says this has to have been rape. There's no way this was consensual. We have to fight against this. This kicks off the war between Targaryen. Oh, yeah. Wait, sorry. I should just correct this. You said it betrothed to Brandon. She's betrothed to Robert, not her brother. Uh, oh, that's right. Just yeah, Brandon was her. Anyway, that's I, I get what you're saying. Um, okay. So you're saying she cheated on Robert and Rhaegar cheated on his wife. That would not make a legitimate child i mean john would not be 
the heir to the throne then. He would be a bastard, which he is. Uh, and then on top of that, another issue I have with this is Robert knows Rhaegar has a kid out there. He's just cool with that. That's I mean, we saw fair. his reaction okay, to Okay, but this doesn't change much. Wait a second. So let me let me shift for a second. Okay, shift on me. If, don't say that, please. That makes me feel weird. <laughs> uh, okay, 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 okay. Here's Here's the idea, right? Rhaegar and Lyanna have a relationship. We know Lyanna knows that Robert Baratheon is not going to ever stay true to her. There's a okay, fantasy that, that Robert has about Lyanna. It's not, but a fantasy is a fantasy. Robert's going to be Robert. I'm thinking that Lyanna and Rhaegar found real love. And Rhaegar said, I'm going to divorce my wife and you're the one for me. To which Liana, with her shitty stark honor, said, can't do that. I'm already betrothed to dumbass Robert Baratheon. Robert Baratheon says, I have a sense based on rumors and hearsay that there is a relationship between Liana and Rhaegar. And if there is, it cannot be consensual. It has to be rape. Okay. From that, there becomes this sort of war effort of Baratheon slash Stark versus Targaryen. And that's where this all went. And the question is, if Rhaegar divorced his wife through murder or legality, would Jon Snow become a legitimate heir to the throne, even though he was born as a bastard, but is now the son of a formal and official wedded Rhaegar and Lyanna? Okay. Um... I don't know I just, the answer to that. I killed it. Book seven, of, Dan. Book seven. Of, I don't need George R. R. Martin. I wrote it. You're welcome. A lot of assumptions based in there. <laughs> uh, somewhere along here, Liana dies, uh, and we don't see anything about that or about John there. Um, just a lot of open questions here and a lot I just of assumptions going on. Even here in this chapter, Liana goes, promise me, Ned. His sister had whispered from her bed of blood. She had loved the scent of winter roses. So okay. she died because of, I don't know why she died. I still don't understand why she's dead. Okay. Somehow she's dead. And it had to do with something blue, which I assume are winter roses. But the fact is, I'm still right about everything else. All right. I mean, we do have an indication of something going on between Rhaegar and Lyanna. I will give you that. The moment when all the smiles died, he's hitting on a chick that's not his wife. I Okay, that's fair. And we certainly have the implication from Robert about rape and, and about him hating Rhaegar for that. That is all in the text. Rest of this, you're taking a lot of jumps here. I think I've poked some holes. We'll see so. how we do. There's no holes. No holes. <laughs> Sealed tight, Dan. Sealed tight. I do like one line in here that, uh, that I, I need to point out. Uh, he reached over to grab the roses in this memory dream off her lap, but beneath the pale blue petals, the thorns lay hidden. Uh, and I just liked the imagery of that as well, since the, the winter roses are making their round through all of this. Um, yeah, that takes me right back to my comment about George R. R. Martin's inability for subtlety. Like <laughs> You're such a hater. Oh, oh, they pricked my uh, the beautiful roses pricked me with their sharp, such a sharp, hater. pointy pointies. All right, this is not about you hating on things. 
It is, Dan. It's a podcast. It's 50-50. Um, but the point is, is that that Ned is in jail. So again, I know I'm repeating ourselves here, but like Ned's in jail. He's delirious. He's starved. He's having memories and conversations with memories. And we really do have for the first time a real clear, what we seems to be memory, maybe fantasy, of Liana and her relationship to Rhaegar. Really for the first time. Yeah. It's not violent. I can't stress that enough, right? A rapist, I don't think, hands out flowers to somebody he's been raping or well, intense. Maybe. Who knows? I mean, no, no, that's and that's really fair. I, I don't yeah, I don't claim to know anything about rape. I don't want to go down this path. The point is, is that like like there, there's sort of this I mean, there's there's a perspective on this moment of Ned's memory of this scene, which is kind of sweet unexpected not honorable but sweet mm-hmm. here is a gentleman bringing flowers to a love of his even though it's not his wife i uh, that said we know liana's dead <laughs> we know right. you know, know like yeah, dead. there's yeah, a i mean spirit. there's a lot of sadness baked into all of this scene with with all of the characters that are mentioned that are dead we have the three members of the king's guard that we know Ned was involved in, in the deaths of, and now Rhaegar and Lyanna as well. Uh, and, and so that is throughout all of this. But he wraps it up here. God save me, I am going mad. And George R. R. Martin, in his subtle way, writes, the gods did not deign to answer. Yeah, they didn't deign that. But I'm very excited to move on to the next part that happens Let's in go. this chapter. Okay. Sure enough, the turnkey of this jail cell comes in and says, you have to have this. And he says, what is it? More water? And the turnkey says, it's wine. And you know who the turnkey is, Dan? Who is he? It's Varys. Okay. Okay, but more importantly that it's Varys. The eunuch's plump cheeks were covered with a dark stubble of beard, Dan. Ned felt the coarse hair with his fingers. Varys had transformed himself into a grizzled turnkey, reeking of sweat and sour wine. And you know who that reminds me of? Who, Michael? Who does that the, remind you of? The guy, Illyrio's pal, that Arya stumbled upon in the whatever place they were with the fake stairway. It was Varys, and I said it then, and yeah. I knew it. You should have doubled down on that. I knew it. Michael's showing me. That. You can't see. He's showing me. He wrote, I knew it, in big letters in I the knew it. his book. Okay, I'm going to give you this one, because it doesn't have the holes of the last one, but I need to deflate your helium. I got to pop your balloon no, a little bit No, before you Michael. do, how okay. did you, Ned says, what sort of magician are you? Same thing Illyrio said. It's a ma- only, you're a magician with killing hands of the king, yeah, I say and, uh, from my And Arya said there was a wizard. He's also wearing the same thing here yeah. as he was then. You damn uh, Michael... The mystery of that chapter was not meant to be Varys. What is that? What? From I think from George R. R. Martin's perspective, certainly from my perspective, for a first-time reader, the mystery was supposed to be who is Varys talking to? It's fuck off. It's all over it. Do you know how many times Varys throughout (laughs) this book has talked about his little birds and then their conversation wraps up with a discussion of his little birds? This is his thing. He's the one with secret passageways. He's the one who gets dressed up. This isn't the first time we've seen him in a costume. (laughs) The question is supposed to be who is he talking to? So you 
you came into that conversation and you're like, so this guy's obviously Illyria. And I was like, ah, fuck, really? He got it already? And then you're like, but I have no idea who the other guy is. No, I, Dan, I, <laughs> I will admit that I have now reread the chapters Good. leading up to that scene. I was originally. wondering if you were ever going to go back and reread it. I think you would have figured it out. I did it twice, Dan. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> I cannot believe I was so confident it was Varys, and there was nothing to say that Varys had ever dressed up like this or looked like this. No, not like that. But we have Fuck seen you. him in other outfits. Fuck this book. <laughs> fuck Illyrio. Fuck Sansa and when Catelyn. We... Like fuck all that dumb shit. I'm so, I knew it. <laughs> so mad of Varys. When we it. when we get to our our wrap up okay. episode for this book, I'm thinking oh. we'll we'll do a wrap up and an intro to the next one, kind of in one thing. But we'll go back and revisit that scene, with the knowledge that it's Varys, and kind of talk about maybe what that tells us about his motives. Uh, certainly in conjunction with this scene and other situations where we've seen there, we we've got a lot to work with once you. Now that you've finally put an identity to this oh character. For, I, I cannot tell you how much this has irked me since that chapter. Oh, I know. You've I, told me. No. You can tell uh, me, and you have. I, so what is Varys doing here? Let's, so let's Varys, get back on track. Varys is here, and 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 the fact is, I'm, I'm not going to, and feel free to let me know if you want to go into it, because there's still a few more pages in this chapter, but it really kind of falls into a very strict, linear kind of conversation that Varys has mm-hmm. with Ned. Varys has allowed himself to come in here to basically say to Ned, the queen's coming to come see you tomorrow. The queen is going to come and and it's going to be a very clear conversation. Will you basically, not apologize, but admit your treachery? Will you take that burden on? Uh, And he uses a quote, a line that I, I really liked, which is that a tame wolf is always more worthwhile than a dead wolf. Yeah. Uh, obviously alluding to the dire wolves the sigil the whatever a lot more more helpful to have the living wolf that is helping the stark children than be sansa with the dead one exactly i but basically there's a fun sort of meta conversation that happens throughout this varus is here to say this is about to happen and i'm here to let you know so that you can be prepared because you need to do this you have to submit to cersei and if not for yourself, do it for Sansa because yeah. Sansa is in Cersei's hands right now. Ned, throughout this conversation, it, I mean, again, it's a very linear conversation where Ned says, there's no way I would admit this. There's no way I would defer to Cersei and Lannisters. And then he says, oh shit, my daughter. And mm-hmm. we're sort of left on this cliffhanger. Who knows what Ned's reaction is going to be, but clearly he wants to hold to honor. He wants to protect his daughter. Yeah. We're going to go back into some other of the details, but on this topic, I think it's worth noting that part of how Varys makes this pitch is by referencing Rhaegar's children. He brings up Rhaenys, Prince Rhaegar's daughter, even younger than Sansa's now with a black kitten she called Balerion, named after Aegon the Conqueror's massive dragon, the Black Dread. We know that this is just a fundamental trauma, a moral moral black line that Ned can never forgive himself for being on the side that crossed and more importantly can never forgive the Lannisters and by bringing this up this is what's going to happen to Sansa the Lannisters did it before they will do it again unless you take this step and you know what a what a great play by Varys to have that insight into Ned from having sat in on those council meetings where they're talking about the plan for Daenerys and hearing Ned make that argument to Robert to bring it back up here to try and push him in the direction he wants. I will add to this 
that Ned comes out directly to ask Varys and says, whose side are you on here? What yeah. the hell is your play? To which Varys responds, I'm on the side of peace. And this is a lot of where my question from the very beginning of this episode came from. Varys is somebody that has served under now three kings that we've come to see, if yes. not more, but I think he might've started with the Targaryens. Targaryens had a long lineage, obviously. Yeah, I, I believe, I, I think he started with the Mad King, which would put yeah. him at three, yeah. But with that said, I... He definitely started under the Targaryens. The question is just if he was there earlier. It's also not lost on me, knowing that this is now Varys that was talking to Illyrio, that he's not against the idea of Targaryens coming back into power. And the fact right. is, is that even though his position has held him under three different kings, he really does seem to be almost Targaryen-minded. You know, this is, the, this is the way that things are moving. This is the way things are coming. And this made the most sense and continues to make, make the most sense. Okay, yeah, because that's that's what I wanted to ask you was about Varys's motives here. Varys does not say anything about Targaryens to Ned other mm -hmm. than, than bringing mm -hmm. up Rhaegar and his daughter here at the end. We do know that he was working with Illyrio, who obviously was, was Daenerys and Viserys' patron, and so there is some sort of connection there. But his stated reasons, his, his stated purposes throughout this chapter are interesting. He says he serves peace and he serves the realm, that he wants to protect people from the ravages of war. And he has this line right at the end when talking about the children, but I think he is, is using it more broadly. The High Septon once told me that as we sin, so do we suffer. If that's true, tell me, why is it always the innocents who suffer most when you High Lords play your Game of Thrones? And I think that that's such an interesting remark because that is not a perspective we have seen from anyone other than maybe Ned. Ned being the one who watches out for the children, Ned being the one who forges relationships with the not highborn people around him and passed that trait on to Arya, certainly. But we haven't seen it from anybody else in power. Nobody else even gives a second thought to the peasants. Uh, Wait a second. There, there was one person. This conversation came up at some point. It was... Uh... I do not remember. Who Edmure. It was Catelyn's brother. Ah, yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, so that's another one as well, but it's it's certainly a very rare trait. And so it's interesting to see Varys frame it this way because it feels authentic. It sounds authentic, but at the same time, he is talking to the man who so far, more than pretty much anybody else we've seen, has embodied this spirit and this line mm -hmm. of thinking. For so sure. what are your thoughts? Is, is this real or is he an agent trying to play Ned for his own purposes here? And if so, what are those purposes? I, I don't know. The, the, you know, I have access to a lot of different ingredients that have gone into who Varys is, but I have yet to understand what the end result, like what the platter is that he's mm -hmm. serving. The fact that he seems to be in a strong relationship with Illyrio seems to be hyper pro-Targaryen. Yes. We've seen Illyrio obviously helping Targaryens, Daenerys, Viserys, you know, making all of this happen, giving them the dragon's eggs, whatever it might be, uh, seems pro that way. However, the fact that Varys ha is having this type of conversation with Illyrio, whatever, however many chapters back, uh, doesn't really mean much because we've seen Varys to be pretty duplicitous. You know, he he Varys does whatever Varys wants to do. And even here he talks about, you know, Ned says, gosh, how much are you just like feeding to, to Littlefinger? And he says, right. I feed, I tell people whatever they need to know to help make them think that I'm on their side. Yeah. Varys has almost a godlike quality here, not in the sense of power, but in the sense of, 
you know, I have a true north direction. I will work that, you know, with whomever it is that I work with. And he even gets direct about it. He says, Ned, Ned says, give me something to write on so I can give a letter out of here. And he says, I'll give you a letter. I'll give you ink and I'll give you pen and I'll give you paper, but I will read it and I will do with it as benefits me the most. Right. Varys, but with that said, I mean, it's it's almost, again, that sort of lack of subtlety from George R. R. Martin, but like Varys is a eunuch, right? Like there is no self-pleasure here. Yeah. He is, he has to be doing this on the side of somebody. It's hard to tell whom. He doesn't seem okay. to love Lannisters. He doesn't seem to love Baratheon, although he does point out that he served Baratheons honorably for 15 years. But that said, we know in his conversation with Illyrio that that was about Targaryens returning before Joffrey got on the throne, you know, long before yeah. that was the sort of upset. So, I yeah, that's fair. It, it's complicated by another piece of what I wanted to talk about here that he says, uh, he mentions the, the role that he has to play in order to do his job and in order to pursue his ends. Specifically, Ned complains uh, he questions Varys. Varys says, I don't want you dead. And Ned says, yeah, but you stood there while they slaughtered my men and put me down here. And he says, and would again, I seem to recall that I was unarmed, unarmored, and surrounded by Lannister swords. Mm-hmm. And he tells this story that before he became a eunuch, he worked with a mummer's troop. He was an actor. He learned everyone has a role to play in shows as in life. And the master of whispers is meant to be, and this is the quote, sly and obsequious and without scruple. A courageous informer would be as useless as a cowardly knight, uh, which I, I just love as a turn of phrase, but also it's just him being honest and open about the fact that he is playing a part at all times and it makes it really hard for us from the outside to figure out what is real and what is not without being in his head uh and and he feels so honest throughout this scene though on the flip side both in telling ned that he's playing a part in doing these things he refers to baelish as the second most devious man in the seven kingdoms which presumably is a reference to himself as the first most serious man. So he's being so honest throughout this that it's hard to discount these claims about acting for the lowborn, acting for the innocents uh, as nonsense when the rest of the time he's being so straightforward and abrupt with Ned. I think that, you know, the fact is that this conversation takes us through the end of the chapter. There's some really like specific information that comes out of it. The core of it is, is the telling Ned that Cersei's coming. This is about to be what's here. But with that said, we learn a good amount about other things that are going on. Yeah, uh, this was the last though, thing I wanted to get to. We, you know, there's there's conversation about Stannis and Renly and what they're doing and how they are as a pair. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the context of that specifically is about Robert's death, which I think is really important because it's something that's been danced around and hinted at and certainly that we've discussed a lot. But Varys is putting cards on the table about what he believes happened or knows happened, depending on how you read his uh, level of of sources, his level of information, which has been pretty good throughout. Um, But he says, you know, yeah, the Lannister squire that you met got Robert drunk. Cersei gave him the wine to give to Robert and told him, you know, make sure you have this available. It's his favorite. But if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. It would have been a a fall from a horse, a straight arrow, something along those lines, because the plan was set in motion. It was not wine that killed the king. It was your mercy. You went to Cersei and told her, you know, and so she moved her timeline up and had the king killed right then. Right. 
I love that, by the way, because the fact is that Ned sucks just as much as Catelyn <laughs> sucks. Yeah. You know, like, no, like I mean, sucks sucks is is strong here, as I've been pushing back on you with Cat. I'll push back on you here. <laughs> he made the wrong play. But the reason why he made the play was to protect the children. This is a a, as I said before, a moral red line for him. This is something he cannot do as a person from a a source of trauma, from a source of a moral code. He will not allow a situation where Robert executes Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella in the throne room, the same as happened to Rhaegar's children. And so he took this step and it ultimately cost him his life. Well, he's in a cell. Uh, Cost him his his free life and all of that. Um, You know, and, and in terms of a strategic play, Obviously the wrong one. Certainly the wrong move. Listen, I like that you're defending him, but I don't know if you're, and this is going to be a, maybe a weird analogy here, but I don't know if you're a fantasy football guy, but like when I am, and <laughs> I won my family fantasy football two years in a row, uh, but yeah. as, as an amazing fantasy football player, like I'm not choosing leaders on my champion foot fantasy you're football You're not looking teams. for the best football best, players. Yeah, the I'm not looking people. for, no, I'm looking for the most honorable. All right. You know what? I don't care if you have an imaginary girlfriend who was murdered. What I care about <laughs> is the fact that you're going to bring me through the championship. And Ned really screwed the pooch on that. Anti Teo bringing it home. Ah, that's a throwback and a deep cut for somebody who does not care about sports like myself. Yep, fair. Um, Varys but- also shares with Ned, too, that Rob, his child, is leading mm-hmm. an army down from the south. Varys lays out the cards for Ned. He's like, yeah. this is what's happening. And he's saying all of this, and I think he does it really well and credit to George R. R. Martin on this, but like Varys does it really well in the sense of saying, this is why you need to capitulate to Cersei. Like you have a young child son leading armies from the North. Stannis right. and uh, uh, what's his name? Renly, Renly coming from this other side. They really are in for their own interests. Like there's a lot that's happening right now. You need to protect yourself and those close to you. Yeah. And just to, to link these, that's, how they got into the conversation. Cersei moved against Robert specifically because of her fears surrounding his brothers. And now she is going to move against Ned, whether to get him to confess and and take and and kneel to Joffrey, swear allegiance to Joffrey, uh, so that she can get Rob out of the fields, so that the Lannisters can get rid of them to deal with Stannis and Renly. They were worried. The Lannisters were worried about the Baratheon brothers moving against her against the Lannisters, and that's why they needed Robert out of the picture so quickly. Varys also goes forward to say, uh, and I cannot remember who had said this already, but saying, like, listen, like, best case scenario here, maybe she'll just let you swear, you know, to the Black, basically, take the Black. You could be Night's Watch, just get the heck out of here. I think I think it was actually in a John chapter, right? Like we were up in the north where somebody yeah. else said that this could be a real thing. The Lord Commander Mormont said, maybe mm-hmm. I'm going to write to the south and see if they'll send him to us because he has the, the right to do that effectively and we need him. And we do know that there are people up there who were sent to the wall as a result of supporting the Targaryens during Robert's rebellion. So yeah. it's not like it's unheard of for somebody to come out the other side of treason or what becomes treason because you lose and be sent to this penal colony as a result. I will say that this conversation really finds itself coming to a close with Varys reminding us once more, and I think you even said this earlier, but reminding us once more that it was Targaryen children that were murdered by Baratheon and Stark armies. 
you and know, Lannister, crucially. And Lannister, you know, that uh, I have here, right? Like, I imagine the Lannisters taught her, the child, the difference between a kitten and a dragon quick enough the day they broke down her door. So <laughs> she might have had a cat named after this big dragon, but she was the one murdered, and that cat was not there to protect her. Uh, and I think he he adds a real human element to a lot of what we've been seeing, right? It's honor, all this, all that. At the end of the day, they're children. They will be murdered. Get your shit together. Get your priorities in order. Yeah. There's a tiny little note that I want to mention here as well, which which relates to that. In his list of what everybody's doing, you know, talking about the Baratheon brothers, talking about Lysa, talking about Rob, he also mentions the Martells still brood on the murder of Princess Elia and her babes. So this is Rhaegar's wife and children. And the Martells actually were included in the list of names to come and swear fealty to Joffrey. Mm-hmm. Um this is the the ruling family of Dorne, the start right. of Dorne, right. if you will. Dorne keeps yes. coming up. It's from the so south. This is yes, the the far south. So it, you know, you've mentioned before about the hints towards expansion of the world and the way that there are these other players kind of lurking out there that we don't know their intentions or where they're coming from. So it's just another drop in that bucket here as well that I wanted to mention. But I want to wrap us up here with a, a question uh, for you, unless you had anything else to cover first. I do not bring on the questions. So we've danced around a lot over the last, you know, half a book about things you think you know from the TV show about where Ned's story is headed. But this chapter has left a fork in the road for him. Uh, And with that in mind about, you know, your thoughts on the future, what's he going to do? We have honorable Ned Stark who cannot tell a lie, you know, but at the same time, got to protect the children, got to, got to keep Sansa safe. That's his, his North star. And he's kind of choosing between these two options here. Even, you know, he says here, my life isn't worth that much to me. I'm not going to say Joffrey is the King when he's not, when Stannis is the King, I'm not going to soil myself that way. And he only questions it when Sansa's name gets brought up. So where do you think we're headed with this? Is he going to do it? Is he going to not have, how, how do his next steps play out here as we come up towards the end of this book? Yeah, I, uh, so I'll say first, you know, spoiler warning for whomever is listening, like, right, but like, yeah, if you somehow have no idea what happened in the TV show at this point, go ahead and skip to the end of this episode. Yeah, so in the TV show, I think it's the end of season one, Ned's beheaded. Yes. And this, I mean, this was a, a moment in television history. You do not kill a character like this. Uh, but sure enough, he, he, here he is kind of beheaded. I do not, I remember the action. I do not remember the context. Right. So maybe he pled fealty and was still murdered, or maybe he stood up honorably and said he wouldn't and was murdered for that, whatever. Okay, I'm, perfect. So in the book context, you well, know, right. what, what you so, got? So I say, I say all of that to say that it's, I'm hard pressed to think that the TV show went so far against the book that Ned survives. Okay, I'm okay, I'm here say, thinking that Ned's going to die. Mm-hmm. With that said, I and I, I know I play this card a lot, but like I don't know. This is I like that this is putting Ned in an uncomfortable position. Your honor yeah. or your child, and that is a really tough line to draw. I want to think that he turns around and and asks for forgiveness and says, I'll do it. I want to protect Sansa. I'll take the black, whatever it takes. Yeah. But with that said, 
there's nothing that would surprise me if he turned around and said, I couldn't do that. You know what, Sansa, best of luck to you. I love you, but I they these are these are traitors. This is treason. Right. This is not who belongs on the throne. You also have to think if he does confess his crime and swear allegiance to Joffrey and then nonetheless gets executed, this is best case scenario for the Lannisters, in effect. I mean, this is this is him helping them cement their hold. And sure. while he doesn't seem to be politically savvy or even very politically conscious, he's not thinking about those types of consequences uh, to the extent it occurs to him that probably plays a role too. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. But it's, I feel like I say this a lot at the end of our episodes, especially recently the past handful, but it's like, great, this setup is amazing. Let's get there. Yeah. <laughs> like, for God's sakes, Martin. Well, good news on that front. We're, uh, we're, we're speeding on things for next week. We're going to do three chapters because that helps set us up for the following few after that to be in, in the order we want them to be in. Uh, so it's going to be a bit of a longer one, but that's going to help help jump us ahead to where we need to be. Amazing. Who are the three? What are we doing? We're doing Catwin 8, John 8, and Danny 7. So it's Amazing. kind of an all-over-the-place grouping. Uh, really three very different locations, but, you know, Catelyn presumably still with Rob. We'll get some insight into what's going on on the war front. John back up north since the zombie attack. We haven't seen him. And then Danny back across the sea. Phenomenal. Well, I'm super excited about it. Let's get this rolling. I'm excited to see Ned die. All right. Talk to you then. (laughs) All right. Bye, Dan. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing three chapters, A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 8, John 8, and Danny 7. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast and tell us your feedback or thoughts on Twitter at Bros with Banners. Thanks, as always, for listening.